welcome to our Kingdom Culture Podcast. For today's message, we are thankful for what God is doing through this podcast to encourage and transform lives around the world. If you have a story to share about how God has encouraged or transformed your life through this podcast, we would love to hear about it by emailing us at mystory@kingdomculture.ca. If you would like to support this ministry financially to help us bring messages like this to you every week, you can do so online at kingdomculture.ca at the give option. We also would love to connect with you on our social media, on Instagram and Twitter at KC Ottawa and Facebook at Facebook slash Kingdom Culture Ottawa. We pray that you would experience God today and be encouraged through today's message. Enjoy. Hey, Kingdom Culture family. I am so excited about this morning. We have a special guest with us, Will Ford from Texas. He's a friend of mine. I actually met him in Israel and he has one of the coolest most encouraging out there stories that he's going to share with you today. I believe it's going to be educational. It's going to be teaching oriented. It's going to be revelational, but ultimately I believe it's going to encourage you and strengthen you to think bigger and to see God in a bigger way in and through your life. His story, I believe truly is going to be one of those mind blowing stories for you. You're going to be like, wow, God, you're just so incredible. So I'm so excited to have Will Ford with us to share his story, to bring the word this morning. And so I want to encourage you, open up your journals, get your notepads out, get your iPads out, your phones, whatever. Take some notes, take some notes. I believe it's going to be one of those game changing stories, game changing messages for you. That's going to leave a long lasting impact and really, I believe, is going to help your perspective on some things, especially during a season that we're all living in. So God bless you, Kingdom Culture. So glad that you're here with us. Tune in. Turn your attention to the guest, Will Ford, that we have this morning. Welcome, Will Ford. We love you, Kingdom Culture. It's going to be a great morning. Hello, Pastor Sean. Listen, y'all, it's so good to be with you this Sunday morning. I'm so excited to be with you today. My name is Will Ford, and um, I can't wait to share with you the king of kingdom culture today, what God has in store for you. Regarding prayer, we're going to talk about prayer probably from a different angle that you ever heard of. Also talking about reconciliation and revival in a way you never heard before. And the reason why I want to come with this message is because I believe that God is setting up kingdom culture to be a carrier of spiritual awakening and societal transformation that's going to lead to reformation, even where you are right now in Canada. So listen, I'm excited about what God is doing, but it's not going to just be about what God is doing you know, to the whole nation of Canada, but right there in your home. God has set up in your family prayer bowls, right? And that's what we're going to talk about today with this little thing here. Now, if I get started with a little bit of prayer, Jesus, we absolutely love you. God, we give you glory. We give you honor. We give you praise. Lord, we magnify your holy name this morning. God, we thank you so much for Newness of life, forgiveness of sins. But Lord, we ask you, make us the answer to your son's prayer, Father. He prayed that we would be one so that your glory could come so that the world would believe. God, use a united church and a kingdom culture to heal a divided nation. And all the, the political vibes that are going on, not just in our nation here in America, but also in Canada and other places, Lord, just the polarization that's going on right now. Give us the grace to respond to your voice in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So some of y'all, probably all of y'all, are wondering what this hunk of tin is doing up here. This has been passed down for generations in my family, about seven or eight generations. It's actually used for cooking. It was used for washing clothes, but secretly it was used for another purpose. I tell you what helped me gain a great understanding uh, and a great appreciation for, for this being passed down in my family. Um, I was reading through John 17, and I realized we're reading John 17. Uh, we're actually getting a chance to overhear Jesus praying for us. He's praying for us in John 17. You ever walked in on somebody praying for you? You ever overhear, ever overheard anybody praying for you? I remember years ago in my, my knucklehead days, right, a backslidden Christian knucklehead, <laughs> and I'm in my 20s, I'm 55 now, so it's like 30 some odd years ago, I was in my college, Morehouse College, and you know, doing the stuff that I guess lots of college kids do, maybe I did a little extra of it, uh, but partied real hard on the weekends and uh, went to classes during the week, so I go home for the summer and I'm thinking I'm going to go 
and uh, hang out on the weekends with my friends and sneak into my mother's house while I'm home for the summer about three o'clock in the morning. But I was a little tipsy, right? So I had a few beers under my bed and been hanging out with friends at a club. And so I'm tipping into my mother's house two or three in the morning, trying not to wake her up. And what happens? I I walk in on my mother praying for me. I mean, my mother is like going to town, y'all, praying for me. Uh, and uh, she's just like, Jezebel, I bind you in the name of Jesus. Uh, Delilah, you better back up. I see your hand. I plead the blood. You know, she's just saying all that, right? No wonder I couldn't get any phone numbers that night, man. My mom was blocking everything that was going on. I couldn't pick up any dates that night. Maybe it's because I had a praying mother. But anyway, I'm sitting there listening to her pray for me. And oh my God, it's just, I was gripped. I was gripped. I was gripped by prayers. You know, God was gripped by prayers too. I had one, heard one preacher say it like this. The only difference between a praying mother and a pit bull is lipstick. Because just like that pit bull, a praying mama does not let go. And I was gripped by that moment. And it, it, it meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to me. A couple of years later, I actually gave my life to the Lord like in a real significant way where I made Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior for real, for real. And I told my mother about that moment where I was outside the room praying, heard her praying for me, and she didn't realize it. And said, you know, Ma, that really had a major impact on my heart, my life. Can't thank you enough. That branded me for life. So you didn't know I was on the other side of that room, but just wanted to let you know that, and I just wanted to thank you. And my mother said, oh, I knew you were there. I knew you were there, I knew you were there the whole time, <laughs> right? If I was there with y'all in person, and I am by, by way of this, now I would say, turn to the neighbor on your couch and tell him, Mama always knows. Yeah. Mama, you always know, don't you? You always know what's going on because you're praying. You're always praying. But here's the thing. She said this. She said, the reason why I went ahead and kept praying, because I wanted you to know what was important to me about God's calling and destiny in your life. And I want you to know what was important to God as well regarding who you are and what your walk of faith is supposed to be about, all, all, all about. And so that branded me. Walking in that prayer meeting, listen, that sobered me up. I would submit to you, y'all, listen, kingdom culture, this verse, John 17, starting at verse 17, this is Jesus praying for the church. He's allowing us to overhear his prayer meeting for us. And so here we are, overhearing Jesus praying for us. This is supposed to sober us up as a church. What is he praying? John 17, starting at verse 17, he says, Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, talking about the disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And I turn to the neighbor sitting on your couch next to you and say, now nah, he's praying for you, <laughs> right? He's praying for you. What is he praying? That they may all be one, even as thou, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Stop there. So listen, what he's saying there is that there's going to be such a oneness that results in unity it's going to come through the church. It's going to provoke a lost and dying world to want, to want to be part of what God is doing with those people. In other words, the greatest sign and wonder in the, earth, in the earth right now is unity through diversity in the church. And it's going to be so provocative in this hour of all the divides that are going on, not just in my nation here in America, but yours and Canada and all around. We're divided more politically, ideologically, uh, racially than ever before. But listen, God's going to use your united church kingdom culture to heal all the divides around us. You're going to be a living witness of the love of God that's going to be so profound. Other people are going to see the love and unity in your fellowship and they're going to say, man, maybe this is the place where I can get that rejection thing broken off of my life. What must I do to be part of that fellowship? What must I do to be saved? That makes sense? I hope it does. Because the prayers that you're praying today 
are connected to somebody else's legacy, somebody else's future. And um, God does not waste any prayers. Let me tell you about another prayer meeting that somebody walked in on. There was a little young lady named Prathia Hall who was praying in the middle of a church that had been burned down by the Ku Klux Klan. And it just so happened that a man named Martin Luther King, you probably have heard of him, the famous speech, the I Have a Dream speech. But did you know that that phrase, I Have a Dream, was actually birthed in a prayer meeting? Little Prathia Hall is praying in that church that was burned down by the Klan. She's standing in the middle of that rubble and she begins to say in a rhythmic cadence, I have a dream. And she just starts naming all things that she was dreaming about. Later on, Dr. King says to her, after the prayer meeting was over and, he was, and she was taking him to the airport, young lady, he said, that was really powerful. I like how you did that. You mind if I borrow that little phrase? <laughs> of course, she said, okay. And Dr. King incorporated the phrase, I have a dream, into his prayer meetings, into his prayer life for about a year, year and a half. Then, about two months before the March on Washington, he actually used the phrase, I have a dream, and made it part of a speech that he had in Detroit, Michigan, and a famous gospel singer, Mahalia Jackson, was there, and she heard him uh, say the I have a dream portion of, of that speech. And he was developing his speech later on for the March on Washington, and his speechwriters, he always had speechwriters that helped him put together his speeches for national gatherings. They said, oh, you know, that I have a dream stuff, that's, that's kind of cliche. Let's just take that out. <laughs> And so he agreed, reluctantly. But then he finishes reading off his speech. And depending on the version of you, uh, depending on the version that you, that you pick up, uh, that you hear this audibly, he finishes reading his speech. And all of a sudden, you hear Mahalia Jackson in the background say, Martin, tell him about the dream. <laughs> Don't you love that? And then he kicks into, I have a dream. And the rest is history, right? Don't you wish you could preach like him? I wish, I wish I could, right? The eloquence and the power, but you know what it was birthed from? A prayer meeting. In other words, Prathia's prayer became Dr. King's dream, an all of our dream. It became a vision that was cast, but I believe it's connected to John 17. <laughs> Jesus, listen, God is going to answer his son's prayer, right? And so we need to be a part of that. Now, that speech means so much to me because I'm one of those sons of former slaves, he says in his speech, I have a dream that one day sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. And uh, I'm one of those sons of former slaves. And like I said, this pot was passed down by the slaves in my family. And I want to share with you a story about the power of prayer that's connected to just what God is doing in my life. And I think it's, I'm just a prototype of what he wants to do at Kingdom Culture and what he wants to do with your prayer life and what kind of legacy he wants to do in the place of prayer, in your fellowship, all right? You're going to hear a bunch of uncoincidental coincidences as I go through this, all right? So, uh, uh, and I, I think it's important because this, this kettle, coincidentally, comes from Lake Providence, Louisiana. Uh, scholars say that Providence is the continuous activity of God by which he preserves and governs. And it's the way God looks over seemingly insignificant things in apparent accidents. In other words, nothing just happens. Yeah, there's some little accidents along the way or whatever, but God watches over it all. I mean, here's the thing. You have no idea how many things were prevented from happening for you to be watching me right now, today. You have no idea how many accidents and, or, or, or things you thought were happenstance and you just stumbled into that job and stumbled into that promotion. No, Mr. Providence, God himself, was watching over all of those things. And my favorite understanding of providence is in Ephesians 2 and 10, where it says that we're God's workmanship in Christ Jesus, and we're walking out the works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. That word workmanship, y'all, it's a powerful word. It's the word poema, poema. So you hear the word poem in there, right? So think about it. You're God's poem. You're his song. Well, even greater than that, the word poema was, the, was used to describe someone who was a skillful tailor fabric maker. In other words, God has a tailor-made plan. He has a tailor-made destiny for all of our lives. But the way that we find out what providence is doing, what God is doing, is through prayer. I love the way that uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, once said, he said, when I prayed, the coincidences happened. 
And when I don't pray, the coincidences stop. <laughs> in other words, when we begin to pray, all of a sudden these uncoincidental coincidences begin to kick in and God just kind of just reveals himself. Even in the Hebrew language, did you know that the word coincidence is not even a word in the Hebrew language? Because they see that God is connected to their past, their present, their future, and he's involved in every aspect of their life. So what does that have to do with this hunk of tin that's up here? That's you know, close to 200 years old. Well, honestly, I hadn't thought much about this color pop either until I went to a little conference in Colorado Springs here in the States, and I heard a man named Dutch Sheets talking about prayer. And he was talking about this amazing concept in prayer called synergy. What is synergy? Synergy is when you take two separate things and when you connect them together, they don't create an addition of power, but a multiplicity of power. Like scientists say, if you take two horses and if you put them together, if they're pulling the same load, it creates so much exponential power, it's as if a third invisible horse has been added. So think about it. In the natural, God has set up something so that when we work together, it doesn't produce an addition in results, but an exponential release of effort and power. That's in the natural. Now, in the supernatural, guess what happens? In the unseen realm, one could put a thousand of light and two could put what? 10,000 of light. That's literally what the scripture says. Listen, that's synergy. So think about this, y'all. If we could start getting agreement in prayer between red, yellow, black, and white, we could get agreement between male and female, old and young, I believe we could see the synergistic exponential release in the power of prayer like we've never seen before. Greatest picture of that is what? Psalm 133, where it says, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. And what? Unity. It's like the anointing oil flowing from Aaron's head onto his beard and onto his robe. And the Bible says, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Listen, y'all, kingdom culture. God's looking for a place called there. And it's the place where we drop all of our agendas and come together and believe. So I understood that first part of what Dutch was talking about. But here's where it goes to a whole nother level of understanding for me. He said this. Not only can you agree in prayer with the person who's sitting next to you, you can also agree in prayer with the generation behind you. He talked about how he was at his alma mater, Christ for the Nations Institute, his Bible school, and he's leading the student body there in prayer for revival. And as he's praying, the Holy Spirit says to him, Dutch, I want you to come in agreement with the prayers of the founder of this school. And Dutch thought, okay, God, is this really you? Because that man's dead. <laughs> He's been dead for about 30 years, and I know you're not going to talk to the dead. About that time, Dutch said he heard his mind. The Holy Spirit say this. He said, I didn't say agree with him. I said, agree with his prayers. His prayers are still alive before my throne. And there are things I want to release into this school, but I can't do it yet because I need this generation to come in agreement with that generation. I want to release the synergy of the ages. So finally, that scripture, Hebrews 11.39, made sense to me, which says this. All these by faith, talking about the great heroes of faith, they were approved for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. So that apart from us, they wouldn't be made perfect without us. So listen, there's a whole company of people, y'all, looking over the balcony of heaven, talking about the cloud of witnesses. My mama, your papa, founding fathers who are believers in Christ, all those people are looking over the balcony of heaven. They're saying, hey, y'all, don't mess this thing up. Because God started something in us that he wants to complete exponentially through you. Jesus said it best when he said, what? Greater works than these are you going to do because I'm going to the Father. It really helps you understand Psalm 133 in a whole new light. Why do I say that? Turns out, when you think about Psalm 133, that unity that he's talking about, the principle we apply to other things, but primarily Psalm 133 is about the unity that we put together in the place of prayer. Why do I say that? Because it's all about Aaron, the high priest. And it's talking about the robes that were on Aaron as well. So that one robe that Aaron had that was passed on from high priest to high priest to high priest, that one robe went from generation to generation to generation. But guess what got passed down on that robe and accumulated as it was passed down? The anointing oil. So we don't understand this concept because when we anoint somebody today, we take a little oil and put it on a finger and we bump somebody on the forehead and just call it a day, right? <laughs> That's not how they did it back then. What they would do is they would take a horn full of oil. According to scholars who have studied this, they, they say there's up to half a gallon or a gallon of that thick, rich anointing oil. 
They would pour it all over that high priest's head. And as the oil dripped down, it went from the head of the high priest to his beard. And then it says onto his robe. Listen, that one robe was then passed down to the next high priest. And so while he has the anointing from the past to help him move forward, now he's also given an anointing for the day to make him impactful and make him relevant. But as that oil drips down, it mingles with the anointing from the past on the same robe. And then that same robe was passed down to the next high priest. In other words, there's supposed to be a momentum building anointing in the place of prayer that goes from generation to generation to generation. It's the saturation of the ages, if you will. You want to call it that. You know, everybody's looking for the next purpose-driven something or the next uh, woman there, I'll lose this or that. Listen, those are great titles. Those are great authors. That's not my point. My point is this. Right now, God is not after originality. He's after a successor. But to a successor, he released a double portion anointing on them that is so powerful and not only make them impactful in this generation, but make them a springboard for future generations to come. In the place of prayer. And he'll start something in one generation and complete it exponentially through future generations. In the place of prayer. When I understood this concept, I was a wreck. Because, y'all, I remember this kettle pot that's been in my family. Like I said, it was used by the slaves in my family. They used it for cooking. Yeah, and they used it for washing clothes. But secretly, this kettle pot was passed down because it was used for prayer. They were owned by a slave master there in Lake Providence, Louisiana, who would beat it for any reason. And prayer was one of them. See, back then, they wanted, they wanted slaves to be Christians because they knew that Christian slaves made better workers. But they would pervert the gospel and say, slaves be obedient to your masters if you want to go to heaven. Now, we know that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God so that no one should boast. It's Ephesians 2 tells us that. But it was easy to, to keep slaves in the dark about the reality of salvation by grace and not works because it was against the law for slaves to read and write. It was also against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. So why they wanted them to be slaves, because they knew the Christian slaves made better workers, they didn't want them to pray because they felt like if they prayed, it would foster hope. They got hopeful. They felt like they would try to run away. Let me give you an example of how cruel slavery was in this plantation. So this, we had a story passed down in our family about a great uncle named Uncle Willie who decided to go fishing without asking on the plantation. And when he returned from his fishing trip, the overseer and the master decided to make an example out of him. So they strapped him to a tree, and he put both arms and legs around either side of that tree to expose his back. They then took a whip, which was shredded, which had rocks and nails and glass attached to it, something like the cat and nine tails, and they beat this slave for father of ours until all the flesh was pulled out of his back. The family, in an effort to save his life, they took a huge sheet and put lard or grease on the sheet. They put grease on the sheet so that the cotton from the sheet wouldn't stick to the exposed skin on his back. They wrapped it around his body to stop the flow of the blood. But in spite of their efforts and because of the cruelty, he bled to death and died. And that's how cruel slavery was in that plantation there in Lake Providence, Louisiana. But the folks who passed down this pot in my family, they were Christians. And in spite of the danger, they decided to pray anyway. So what did they do? Well, they would have a prayer meeting at night on the plantation to make sure the prayer meeting wasn't seen. But to make sure it wasn't heard, they used this cast iron kettle pot. So how would they do that? They would go into the middle of the cabin floor, as the story is told to me, and they would turn the pot upside down. They would invert it, turn it upside down. And then they would take about three or four rocks to prop up the edges of it so it would be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They would then prostrate themselves on the ground and put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle, so that the kettle popped up with their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story that was passed down with this pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time. So they prayed for the freedom of their children and their children's children. Isn't that fascinating? These folks risked their lives to pray for the freedom of their children and the next generation. Well, one day, freedom comes and there's this young teenage girl that decides to keep this pot in this story in our family. Now, why would she do that? She's probably thinking about all those who are dead and gone, who risked their lives to pray 
for her. She's probably thinking about all those who are too old to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. So she keeps this pot and that story in our family, and she passed the pot and the story down to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett then passed it on to Noah Lockett. Noah Lockett passed it on to her son, William Ford Sr., who then passed it on to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. So I'm there at this conference, hearing this man talking about prayer and how we can agree with the unfinished business of those who have gone before us in the place of prayer as an intercessor. And I thought, oh my God, I remember the kettle pot for the first time. I thought, oh my God, to whom much is given, much is required, right? Look, I, I don't want to guilt anybody into praying, <laughs> get you into the prayer meeting, but the truth is this. They had a slave master back then that kept them from praying, but we have a willing master that keeps us from praying today. You know what it is? It's called social media. It's called entertainment. Like I said, I don't want to guilt you into the prayer room, but the truth of the matter is this. We feast and play, they fasted and pray. We're not going to see what they saw unless we do what they did. I think God is calling kingdom talk culture to a new place of not just a responsibility, but a new place of appreciation for corporate prayer right there in your fellowship. But beyond the obligation, y'all, here's what happened to me. I realized the privilege. I thought, oh my God. God, I get to agree with the prayers of my forefathers for the freedom of this next generation. And I thought about the exponential results that could be released and created from that. You know, about that time, myself and my friend Dutch Sheets, we were talking about doing this amazing prayer journey called the Kettle Tour. And we're going to take this part around the country to represent the prayer bowls in heaven. Listen, Revelation 5 and 8 said there are golden bowls in heaven full of incense. And the Bible says it is the prayers of the saints. Listen, there's not one wasted prayer in heaven. There's a prayer bowl over Canada. There's a prayer bowl over your church fellowship, kingdom culture. God's looking for a new generation to resource the prayer bowls once again. Amen? He said, God, you want me to have some cast iron cooking pot represent the prayer bowls in heaven, taking it around the country? Let's have one of these uncoincidental coincidences happen to him where he had his Bible. You ever play Bible roulette and you just... God, give me a confirmation. He, he said he had his Bible. It falls open to Zechariah 14 and 20. Part B of that verse says this. And the cooking pots in the house of the Lord. So it'll be like the bowls before the altar. <laughs> so here's this cooking pot that's caught muffled prayers. The same way as a bowl in heaven that catches up prayers like incense. And Dutch said this to him. He said, William, wouldn't it be just like God to use the prayers of a slave generation to free a nation up for revival again? And I'm glad he said that because it wasn't just the prayers of black Christian slaves praying back then. Listen, there were also white Christian abolitionists and white revivalists. They laid their lives down because they knew that the Christian slave was their brother in Christ Jesus. They knew they were fighting for their brother or for their sister. And it was that level of fight that they had for their Christian brothers and sisters that got them into I mean, they, they went through horrible things. Those white abolitionists and revivalists, they were tarred and feathered. I mean, that's to literally put tar on somebody, hot tar, and throw feathers on them to mock them. They also were beaten and whipped, and some were even lynched. Houses were set on fire because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and weak at the sin of slavery. One of them was a man named Elijah P. Lovejoy. There in his town of Alton, Illinois, here in the States, when a slave was beat to death, this white pastor decided to become an abolitionist who wanted to see slavery abolished uh, in, his, in his town and in the nation. So he bought this new thing called a printing press. <laughs> It'd be like, like us getting a new app called Facebook and using it as a means to communicate the truth. So he, he gets that, uh, that, that, that new um, technology and he starts printing up abolitionist material and sending it all throughout the countryside faster than people could keep up with it. And many, big, many people began to change their minds and go from slavery to abolition because of his writings and his preachings. Except for this one little angry mob of folks who decided that they needed to do something about this, this, this person who's stirring up all this trouble in their town. They were the slave owners in the town and they wanted to keep things the way that they were. 
And so Elijah P. Lovejoy was a, uh, you know, is upsetting the status quo. Listen, there are people in your, your congregation right now, God is calling some of y'all to upset the status quo, to speak truth to power, to speak truth in love. But God is raising up people in your fellowship to be a voice for the voiceless. I say all that, say here's what happened with Elijah P. Lovejoy. He uh, was getting death threats from these angry mobs that were coming to his house who were the slave owners. And so they destroyed three printing presses and threatened to burn down his house. He comes before the city council and the mayor and he says, listen, I need you to protect me. And uh, it's the duty of the government to protect their citizens. Why aren't you protecting me? And the mayor and the city council said to Elijah P. Lovejoy, they said, sir, if you would just stop preaching what you're preaching and writing what you're writing, that would be your protection. Elijah P. Lovejoy begins to weep in front of the mayor in that council. And he said, forgive my tears. I shed them not for myself, but for you and others. He said, sir, I cannot stop doing what I'm doing. Because if I did, I would fear that the angel of the Lord with his flaming sword would pursue me wherever I'm going. I don't fear man, I fear God. And if I fall, my grave shall be made here in Alton, Illinois. End of quote. His words proved to be prophetic. The next day, an angry mob came to his house. They burned his house down. And as Elijah P. Lovejoy ran out to escape the flames, he was shot and killed. Listen, God has not forgotten about people like that. And it was that labor and that sacrifice that helped me understand something. They were fighting for their Christian brothers who were bound in chains and slavery. And they knew they were connected because of the blood of Jesus. Help me understand something. We understand this thing about history and legacy, but we cut it off spiritually. We don't realize this is all part of all of our spiritual inheritance. In other words, if my ancestors had been Muslims or Buddhists, listen, I would have no connection to this pot or its history. But because they are Christians, they were Christians. Not only are these my ancestors and forefathers, listen, kingdom culture, they're your ancestors too, if you're a Christian. In other words, because of our identity in Christ, before I'm an African-American here in America, I'm first and foremost a Christian in America. If I was in Canada, I'd be first and foremost a Christian in Canada. Um, in other words, it's not about the color of our sin. It's about the color of his blood. It connects us in Christ. I'm just as much a spiritual son of a, one of the famous you know, revivalists like Charles Finney and, and, and Jonathan Edwards. I'm just as much a spiritual son of them as you are William Seymour. Zeus Street Revivalist or, or Martin Luther King Jr. Or, or Harriet Tubman. No matter what race you are, we're connected because of the blood of Jesus. Listen, y'all, when we come together in that kind of unity, that kind of agreement, something powerful happens. The oil begins to flow. Anointings begin to mingle. Yokes get broken over generations. Listen, there was a godly remnant of people back then of black Christian slaves and white Christian abolitionists Think about it. They prayed into being the first and the second great awakening. Had it not been for those revivals, slavery would have never ended in our nation. And there was a Supreme Court law back then called Dred Scott, which said that slaves had no rights in the courtroom, but because God sent revival. Listen, that law got broken in the hearts of people so radically, people in the North were willing to fight for people in the South that did not look like them. Listen, y'all, that's why I'm daring to believe the same God who broke the power of Dred Scott in our nation, he can break the power of Roe v. Wade. He can break the power of systemic poverty. He can stop schools from being pipelines to prison. He can shut down the opiate crisis that is happening, not just in my nation, but also in yours too. He can also put an end to things like mass incarceration, other things, other systemic things. He's just looking for a group of people who will drop their agendas and come together and believe. And that's what I think he's doing in the kingdom culture. But here's the thing. The Lord said, William, if you want to be a part of this, I need you to deal with your own baggage. You want to be a part of this? You have to deal with your own stuff. <laughs> so God dealt with my own issues with this whole issue. But through a dream that he gave me about the dream of wanting to the king. In the dream, I'm on my way to... Dr. King's old church, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. I was riding in the car with my friend Lou Engle in the dream. And in the dream, Lou says, we can't get to Dexter Avenue unless we go first go pick up Dr. King. <laughs> Side note, there's some people, some mindsets 
godly folks, that we spiritually we need to pick up some things so we can move forward in the right way. I ain't talking about talking to the dead. I'm talking about moving forward with the right spirit in this hour, right? And so in the dream, we go by this house, and it's a dream. So Dr. King is alive in the dream. And in the dream, he comes out of this house, and he has this humongous white duffel bag with black candles on it. And in the dream, he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. Then he throws the bag down violently and he comes to get into this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I thought to myself, man, that bag will make a nice souvenir. <laughs> it shows y'all carnal I am, right? Like, even in my dreams, I'm thinking, I went to Morehouse College, he went to Morehouse College, the bag will make a nice souvenir. That's what I thought. So in the dream, I get out of my vehicle to go pick up the baggage. But before I could touch it, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders and he says, no, do not go back and pick that up. And then in the dream, he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the racial divide. I wake up from the dream, y'all. I'm, I'm in tears. Tears are streaming down my face, but I didn't realize it. I was weeping in intercession the whole night. My pillow was soaked with tears. I shared the dream with my friend Lou Engel. He begins to weep, and we began to say, God, what is the interpretation for this dream? I said, God, remind me. What did Dr. King say to me? And the Lord said to me, William, the white bag with the black candles. That would be the interpretation for your dream. I knew what God was talking about. All of a sudden, it hit me. The black candles represented how I, as a black man, as an African-American man, had been hanging on to my white baggage. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. I knew what God was talking about because I know what it's like, 13 years old, to be in a car with Three other friends, well, 12 and 13 years old, were coming out of a convenience store, and this uh, angry Carlo full of white guys began to call us the N-word, began to say very ugly things to us, said they were going to shoot and kill us. They chased us for about two hours. Probably they were just joyriding, but listen, as kids, we were terrified. We didn't know them. Um, I know what it's like later on in my life to get my first nice house in the suburbs but had the same police officer every week for the first three months, he would pull me over just for driving wild black. I know what that felt like. But you know what I had done? For every police officer and every white person in that community, I put those stories and those bad experiences on everybody in that region. I stayed away from it as best I could. I basically prejudged everybody before I had one conversation with them. That's the devil's diabolical plot, and it's Revelation 12, where it says the devil is the accuser of the brethren. The word accuser, y'all, is a powerful Greek word. It comes from the Greek word kategoros, is where we get the word category. In other words, the diabolical plot of the devil, of the enemy, is to get us to categorize or stereotype each other. So before we have one conversation with each other, we put some bad narrative, we put some bad storyline, we put some bad experience. With that one bad actor and one group totally stigmatized a whole group of people, a whole group of people in the profession. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your bitterness. Get rid of your unforgiveness. Get rid of your resentment. Get rid of your white baggage so you can get into a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. So the question I believe God has for us right now, kingdom, kingdom culture, is this. What color is your baggage? Is it a political party? Whatever that is, listen. In our nation, we have the far left, we have the far right, and people call them the left wing or the right wing. I believe God is saying, listen, left wing, right wing, the whole bird is sick. We need the dove back in our nations. Listen, get rid of your baggage because only a united church is going to heal the divides in our nations right now. So I had this revelation, and the next day, actually, after I had the dream, I was actually speaking in Dr. King's old church, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, with my friend Lou Engel. I shared that dream, brought the pot. We had a powerful reconciliation service there that day. But as the service was ending, I get to go up to Dr. King's old pulpit. And so I decided to take this 
big 600-page book with me called The Testament of Hope, it falls open to the I Have a Dream speech. Falls open to the I Have a Dream speech, but on its own. And so I thought, let me take this up to his old pulpit, and I just, I'm just going to read this like a prayer and pray it out over the nation. But I get to this part where it says, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners would be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. And for the first time, I prayed for the family that owned my family where this cattle pot came from. And I forgave them. And I prayed for them. But little did I know that Mr. Poema was going to connect me to this family in the most unusual way. So, about a year and a half goes by, my friend Lou Wingle says, hey, I'm going to do a prayer gathering at the Lincoln Memorial. It's going to be on MLK Celebration Day, January 17, 2005. I want you to come, bring your pot, share your story, share that dream that you had, and uh, it's going to be a powerful time. So I decided to come. Well, little did I know that uh, I would meet a man who was also led to that gathering because of a dream. He actually takes this picture. I'm going to show you this picture here. This is the picture that he took that day while he was walking around taking pictures. And if you follow that blue sleeve with the black hand coming out, if you follow it to the tip of the fingers, that's my face. Now, I didn't take the picture that day. A guy named Matt took that picture that day. We didn't know each other, but he was led there by a dream. His dad actually died January 17, 2004, a year to the day that we, we were going to meet. And uh, he was going through a rough time in, in his life, asking all the same questions um, you probably would or probably have when a, when a loved one, especially a parent, dies. God, what am I here for? What's your plan for my life? Where do we come from? So he was going through all that of trying to figure out where his family came from. But the more he tried to do his genealogy research, he kept running into all the same dead ends that everybody else in his family. As much as they knew uh, their family history got burned up in courthouse fires where they were all from in Kentucky. But around that time, Matt said he had a dream. In the dream, he was praying for revival and the ending of abortion with a man named Lou Engle. And he wakes up from his dream and he goes, okay, why was I praying about the ending of abortion? And then two, why in the world was I praying with a man named Lou Engle? Who and what is a Lou Engle? That's what he thought. <laughs> and so he goes to this newly invented thing called Google. It's 2003, 2004. 2004, he has his dream. Types in the name Lou Engle and up pops the face of the man that he saw in his dream. And he's praying for revival praying for a culture of life in our nation. And so he freaks out. Matt had never had a dream quite like this. And so he finds out that there's a prayer gathering that's going to happen there in Washington, D.C. on that day, January 17th, 2005. He prays about it, decides to come. And after, I, you know, we were there at the prayer meeting that day, but he decides to come that night. I spoke that night and I had to kill him. I shared the story, shared the dream with Dr. King and all that shared about my family's history. And when I go down the family history line, I start talking about how this kettle pot came from the locket side of my family. I look out and I see this white guy with his hands buried in his beard, sobbing. He comes up to me, it's Matt, he says, listen, you said this pot comes from the locket side of your family. He said, I was stunned by that because my last name is Lockett. I was like, really? How do y'all spell Lockett? You know, because at this point in time, I'd never met an, a, another Lockett before, especially the white one. So I'm wondering, hey, did your family, was it connected to my family some kind of way? <laughs> right. So those things are going through my mind. I said, well, how do y'all spell Lockett with two T's or one? And I just waited for a response. He said, we spelled it with two. I said, oh, in my family, they spelled it with one. That's what I saw on the census records. He said, where, I said, where are your Lockett's from? He said, Kentucky. I said, oh, mine, they were from Louisiana. So we thought it was just like this cool coincidence, right? But it was enough to connect us as friends. We prayed that night, and we've been praying ever since. We've had a 17-year-long friendship. We've been together through each other's ups and downs, highs and lows, and he's become one of my best friends, Matt Lockett. And so we've been praying together, contending for revival together, praying for God healing, the, you know, the racial divide in our nation, contending for a culture of life, doing life together, 
you know, I kind of think maybe that's how this is supposed to work, right? Well, time goes on, and um, let's fast forward here. So Matt decided to go help Lou Engel pray at uh, this place called Appomattox Courthouse in our nation. It's the place where we have this big thing called a civil war. Maybe your nation may have, y'all may have heard about the fact that we had a civil war. Or the fact that we're kind of in a civil war right now, but that's another sermon for another day. <laughs> but uh, the deal is we had this civil war uh, in the 1860s time period. And so Lou Engel thought, because of all the division in our nation, let's go pray at the place where the South surrendered to the North in the Civil War. So he goes there, they pray, they come out. They go into this visitor center, and uh, Lou grabs the first book off of the shelf, and he grabs it, he looks at it, he's like, whoa. Why can't you, you know anything about this? And I'll sh show you the, the picture of it right now. It, he saw this. He saw a book that says, The Last Shot, The Battle for Lockett's Farm. <laughs> and so Matt is kind of freaking out because he's hearing his name called out again, like, like the day that we, we met. And uh, he said, I'd never heard of this. It turns out that there is this house called Lockett's Farmhouse where the leader of the Southern Army, uh, General Lee, this is the place where he lost his last battle before he signed, the, just a day or two later, the unconditional surrender papers. So I thought, man, this is significant. What a cool coincidence. Well, about that time, Matt, got, he gets a call from his brother. And he says, hey, man, I just cracked a code in our family history. I, I got us past all the stuff in Kentucky. He said, oh, I got us all the way back to Virginia, which is one of the states in our union. And uh, Matt says to him, oh, wow, Virginia, do I have a Virginia story for you? And Matt starts telling him about this place called Lockett's Farmhouse in Virginia. And his brother stops him and he says, hold up. I just got the documentation on that place. That's just not any family. He said, that's our family. In other words, Matt finds out, like, this is not a guy named, like a guy named Smith reading about another guy named Smith in, family, in some kind of family history or some history book or whatever. In other words, Matt finds out that the Civil War in our nation ended in his family's front yard. And so here's actually, I'm going to put this up for you. This is a picture of that house. You see right there in the front, it says, Here Lee fought his last battle, April 6, 1865, right? And if you were to go up to the house, you could still see like the bullet holes in it. From the Civil War, it's been preserved for the day of battle. So Matt decides to go out there to go, you know, see this place, to go pray. And um, if you go inside the house, he will, he did, he did. He actually got a chance to go inside the house. And uh, here's the man showing him the genealogy of the Lockett family history. And Matt pulls out his brother's research. It fits like the hand in the glove. This is his family. And so the gentleman inside said, well, how much do you know about your family history? And Matt said, oh, not much. He said, well, uh, Y'all were really good friends with, with King George, and he gave you thousands of acres here in Virginia, and you were some of the last land barons in Virginia. And you owned lots and lots of slaves, and you had really, really big families. But you didn't just stay in Virginia, in this state. He says, some of y'all moved from this state, and you went to Kentucky. And Matt was like, I know that part, <laughs> right? That's where his family came from. But then he said this. Some of y'all went down to the deep south, and some of y'all went down to Louisiana. That's where my family's kettle pot came from. And Matt starts remembering the first conversation he and I had. And then before he could ask him, the man said this to him. Oh, yeah, and sometimes as you traveled across the country, there were clerical errors in the, in the, in the ledgers, and they dropped one of the T's off the end of your name, Lockett. With that, Matt, remember the first conversation he and I asked, had when I asked him, how did they spell like with one T or two? So he started kind of thinking what you're thinking. And so he flew from Washington, D.C. to Dallas and just laid all this information out. And honestly, we just kind of talked and prayed and cried. <laughs> yeah. Talked and prayed and cried for, for, for a while. See, my oldest known family member was a man named Isaac Lockett. Now, I'll put this slide up for you. He, uh, he shows up in this census registry here. He, he's 90 years old in the 1870 census, so like about six or seven years outside from when slavery ended in the United States. Uh, so more than likely, at 90 years old, this is the place where he lived, there in East Carroll Parish, which is today Lake Providence, Louisiana. 
But in that document, Isaac Lockett said he was originally from Virginia. Well, the only Virginia Lockett's at that time in Virginia was Matt's family. And the way slavery worked is slaves always took on the last names of the people who owned them. So that led to a lot more research. So my grandfather was born Lawrence Lockett, but his grandparents who raised him didn't want him to have a slave last name. So they changed his last name to the last name of one family friend and gave him the first name of another family friend. And he went from being Lawrence Lockett to being William Lawrence Ford. So that's how we became Fords in our family. So led to another year and a half or so of research. So here's what we learned from the empirical evidence that we have. It was my friend Matt Lockett's family that owned my family where the kettle pot came from. So think about it. Here's my family praying for the ending of slavery. And then all the way up at the farmhouse of the people who owned them and gave them their last name, slavery comes to an end in their front yard. But then, because he's the God of the past and the future, and our God loves to heal history, Mr. Plamer weaves two people's lives together because of praying folks, weaves our storylines together so we can war against injustice in our day and cry out for awakening in our time. And that's what he did for Matt Lockett and how he connected our lives together. I think he's doing the same thing with many of y'all there too. He's weaving your lives together. It's not a mistake that you're in a place called kingdom culture. It's not a mistake that you're, you, many of you want to be an influencer to make it be change agents, not just in the family, but in the culture. But to do that, you're gonna, you have to accomplish it first in the spirit realm, in the place of prayer. And it's not going to be overnight, but listen, you can start something today that can continue on for future generations. Let me tell you a little bit more about our story. So Matt and I, we, we started sharing this story across the country. And, um, and uh, we actually got the chance to uh, go to that place where my family was slaves, Lake Providence, Louisiana. And here's a picture of that plot of land. We actually found the plot of land where Isaac Lockett said he used to live. So think about it. More than likely, there was a prayer meeting on this plot of land about 200 some odd years ago, maybe, where people snuck into a barn late at night, this very pot, to pray not just for my freedom, but for your freedom, too. So the town of Lake Providence heard about our story, and uh, we shared it there in the town. And uh, the, the mayor of Lake Providence actually gave us the keys to the city. <laughs> Listen, God is releasing keys of Providence to open doors so no man can close and to close doors no man can open in the place of prayer. I believe he's literally doing that. And Matt and I, we learned something else, too, from our story that was so profound. Um, it turns out that uh, Matt's family, about a, year, about a year and a half ago, half later after we dealt with the struggle, of uh, finding this out. Let me tell you something. First, we were, because we're, you know, we're in the prayer movement, we're part of this prophetic movement thing or whatever in America, and when we first realized this stuff, and we're like, oh my God, your people used to own my people. The end is a trip. We've been knowing each other all these years. Look how God put us together and all that. And then, you know, that kind of lasted for like, like five or six months. But then after a while, it was kind of like, hold up. Your people used to own my people. <laughs> What about Uncle Willie? <laughs> what about some of those other, other horrible stories? In other words, even though I've been doing the work of reconciliation for years, I had anger stuff just start festering up. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I'm intercessor. Maybe it's because I'm human. <laughs> but now I finally had a face connected to the painful stories of my family, but it's connected to somebody that I love. And so I was trying to forget how my friend's family were ever my family's enemy. And so I had to go to a new level of forgiveness. And I, I talked about it with Matt and did a lot of soul searching and praying on my own, uh, you know, in private. But then he had stuff he had to go through as well. He said, you know what, for the longest, I just dismissed the pain of a people. When people would talk about slavery. He would just say, well, I wasn't there. You wasn't there. Get over it. <laughs> he said, but for the first time, he had a face connected to the pain of a people, but it was connected to somebody that he loved. 
And so he went to a deeper place of accepting responsibility to repent so that he can see healing happen to other people. We've seen God move in such powerful ways, y'all. And I gather when we share this story together. But anyway, all that to say, we stayed stuck in that place for about a year, year and a half. But you know what the beautiful thing is? God gave us the gift of relationship before we ever found this stuff out. Think about it. We had a decade of praying together, contending and doing life together, becoming best friends during this time period. Ten years of that before we found out all this other stuff. Why? Because if we hadn't, we would have had basically a socially distant relationship. Hello, goodbye, you stay over there, I'll stay over here. It would have been just like that. But God connected us together, let our hearts get knitted together so we could handle a story like this. I believe God is doing the same thing right now, even with some of you right now. He's giving you the gift of relationship with, so, with, with others because he wants to take you to a deeper place of healing and a deeper place of contending together for revival and awakening. A lot of people want the signs and the wonders without becoming the sign and the wonder. A lot of people want this without doing prayer and relationship, and that's what it's going to take. It's going to take prayer and relationship, intimacy with God, and openness and vulnerability with each other, living past the awkward moments and holding hands and doing life together. That's what God is calling you to, kingdom culture. So, so after a year and a half of being in that place, guess what happened? Man, that opens up a book one day about Methodist Revivalist, and he reads about a man named Daniel Lockett. He thought, man, well, that's pretty cool. Daniel Lockett led this huge revival for six weeks, one of the last revivals in the Great Awakenings. Well, he pulled out his family history just to see if it was connected, and sure enough, there was a Daniel Lockett in his, uh, in his genealogical research that his brother had done and other people had done, and he did more research. This man was his family member, and he was a circuit rider with a man named Francis Asbury in our nation. Now, what's a circuit rider? Circuit riders were these amazing revivalists who had traveled horseback in America and also in Canada, preaching, going in these circuits, riding horseback to go preach the gospel. And uh, you could not be a circuit rider and own slaves because they were staunch abolitionists as well. So they would carry three things in their, in their satchels with them. They carried a Bible, they carried a hymnal, and they also carried a manumission book. The manumission book was full of forms so that if they preached the gospel and a slave master was there and he came up to get saved, they would say to him, listen, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, go ahead and sign their names on this manumission form to set them legally free too. <laughs> Isn't that powerful? Well, we know that's exactly what happened because everywhere the circuit riders went, the free slave population grew exponentially. Right? That's the power of the gospel. That's the breaker of anointing everybody likes to talk about, right? So yeah, man had family members that owned slaves, but also had family members that were revivalists and abolitionists, took strong stands against slavery. It's like all of our families, right? We have these dominating themes called generational curses or generational blessings that tell the story about what a family is about. Um, I, people in my family yeah, have done things that we're not proud of in prison. I've done stupid things, but thank God for the blood of Jesus. But I have these folks who are contending for revival and the ending of slavery. Yeah, man, I have family members that own slaves, but also family members who um, not only taught slaves uh, how to read and write, we'll get to that in a second, but also contended for the ending of, uh, of slavery through the preaching of the gospel. So it's like all of our families, we have these things called generational curses and generational blessings represent these dominating themes or storylines. And I believe what God is saying to you, kingdom culture, right now is this. What storyline do you want to be a part of? The healing or the hurt? The blessing or the curse? What storyline do you want to be a part of? Last story I want to share with you. So um, remember I told you slaves, it's against the law for slaves to read and write. And it was also against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. Well, one of Matt's family members walked in on two slaves trying to teach each other how to read. There's a mother trying to teach her five-year-old boy how to read. And just after slavery, it was still frowned upon because people were afraid of insurrections. And so when Lucy Lockett, Matt's ancestor, walked in and saw them 
trying to learn how to read, they thought it was going to be some bad consequences for that. But Lucy Lockett closed the door behind them and said, no, what you're doing is good and right. Let me take over your tutoring. And she did. She got one of her daughters to take over the tutoring of that mother, that five-year-old boy. We know this story because that five-year-old boy grew up to be a man named Robert Russell Moton. Who is he? Well, Robert Russell Moton grew up <laughs> and he became the second president of this amazing uh, university called Tuskegee University here in the States. He actually became an education advisor to four presidents. And get this, when the Lincoln Memorial was finally built, they needed a person to do the dedication speech. And they asked Robert Russell Moton to be the person to do the dedication speech. Matter of fact, here's a picture of him right now, giving that speech at the Lincoln Memorial. Isn't that powerful? Taught how to read and write by Lucy Lockett because she chose to be part of the healing storyline for our nation. But the interesting thing is that 41 years later, Dr. King would come to those same steps at the Lincoln Memorial here in our nation's capital and give the I Have a Dream speech. And then 41 years later, my friend Matt Lockett and I would come to those same steps <laughs> and meet each other for the first time in a prayer meeting at an MLK Celebration Day prayer meeting. Now, and it's, it's crazy, but let's think about it. This happened to two men who are led by dreams to meet each other at the Lincoln Memorial to the very place where Dr. King said in his I have a dream speech, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. So think about it. Maybe the dream speech wasn't just poetry. Maybe it was prophecy. <laughs> Maybe there's this dream king called the King of Kings and he has a Father is going to answer his prayer when he said, Father, I pray that they'll be one so that your glory can come so that the world would believe. Maybe God hadn't forgotten about the prayers of Prathia Hall or of your mama, your papa, your father, your mother, your grandparents, the founders of Canada. Maybe he hadn't forgotten about those prayers. Maybe God is still going to use the maple leaf to heal the nations of the earth like he did in Revelation 22. Listen. We're in a hopeful time if we're in the place of prayer. We can find out what providence is doing, not just in our lives, but in our nations, in the place of prayer. Matter of fact, Kingdom Culture, can I pray for you? So, Father, we come before you because we overheard your son praying for us. And it has, it has wrecked us. It has branded us. You want us to be one, a oneness that results in a unity that's so profound, a lost and dying world would see it and want to be part of what you're doing in the earth through us. So I thank you for there being a prayer bowl over kingdom culture, prayer bowl over Sean and his team. God, I thank you that you're going to tip the prayer bowls over this fellowship in such a profound way. I thank you for the spirit of awakening being released. I thank you for souls being saved and lives being changed. But even today, I just want to offer up to somebody right now, you're listening to this, and I want to tell you, it's not a mistake that you're listening to me right now. Nothing just happens. Somebody pray for you. <laughs> I know this man, Sean, we, we were together in, in Israel, we got an amazing trip together. He's a praying man. No, he, he's praying for you. This church has been praying for you. Two weeks ago, somebody was praying. 200 years ago, somebody's been praying for you. But I know 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ had you on his mind. And I talked about my great uncle, Willie, who unwillingly gave his back to be beaten. But literally, Jesus Christ willingly gave his back to be beaten for you took your sin upon himself. And guess what? By those stripes on his back, he's going to heal your history if you let him. And by his blood, he wants to unite you to all the unfinished business. There's a redemptive purpose for which you were born into the family that you came through. Regardless of the pain, regardless of the circumstances, listen, God willed you into existence. You're not a mistake. 
Nothing just happens. And I want to pray for you. Kingdom Culture, will you pray with me together right now? Well, this one person, several people looking at this right now, I want to pray for you. Just repeat this prayer after me. If you want Jesus Christ to come into your life, listen, those generational curses in your family can be stopped with you right now. And you can move the chain forward for healing for your family, your community, and all those around you. In other words, you could be the sign of the turnaround. But you have to make that decision right now. Just repeat this prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of your mercy. Confess my sins before you and ask you, come into my heart. Come into my life. I thank you for forgiving me. Your word says if I confess my sins, you're faithful and just to forgive me of all my sins. And cleanse me of all unrighteousness. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Now, one more thing I want to pray for you. Can I pray for you for generational blessings to be released in your life? Yeah, generational curses, they're real, they're powerful. They go three and four generations. But listen, the generational blessings go to a thousand generations. That means basically forever. And the blessings, y'all, listen, they're way more powerful than the curses. I'm a living witness. So let me pray for you right now. Father God, right now, in Jesus' name, we forgive the sins of our forefathers. Every sin of alcoholism and drug abuse, divorce, sexual addiction, all those different things, God, witchcraft, pornography, all those things, hatred, bigotry, racism, whatever that is, God, whatever that looks like, we forgive those sinful patterns, those sinful iniquities, we forgive the sins of our forefathers, but God, we thank you for the redemptive purpose for which we were birthed into our families. And by your blood, we break the power of every curse that tried to come through our family. That sin that so easily besets us, we break the power of those sin patterns off our family. And God, we call forth generational blessings. We call forth spiritual inheritances. We call forth the redemptive purpose for which we are birthed into the family that you place us in, the area that we live in. God, we call forth unfinished business of those in the household of faith from our family, even the spiritual fathers and mothers in our community. Father, give us the unfinished business of your son who said, greater works than these are we going to do because he's gone to be with you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen and amen. God bless you, Pastor Sean. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And I cannot wait for the day that I'm with you guys in person. God bless you. Whoa, what a powerful message by Will Ford. What an amazing story. What a crazy mm -hmm. testimony that he shared with us this morning. Really pray that you were impacted. If you gave your life to Jesus, if you made this best decision of your life, let us know by sending an email to prayerkingdomculture.ca. We would love to send some resources your way. And that's it. What an amazing Sunday, right? Yeah, it was awesome, guys. And I really hope you have an amazing week. And we'll see you here next week. Bye.